Larry Gentis lives in Kirkmichael and he was three days without electricity at the end of November. During that time he was inspired to write a monologue about angels at Christmas. Here's Larry as an angel. Hello, I'm, uh, I'm an angel. I, I know that sounds trite and I'm sure it invokes all kinds of images such as wings, halos, long white robes and all that. The truth is, it's not what you think. Can we fly? Well, yes, of a sort. I mean, when the Father sends us on a mission, we don't think of it as flying. We just make our way to the place and to the person we're visiting. In fact, we're just messengers. Oh, okay, I take your point. We tend to be bigger and more imposing than humans. And it's said that light shines from us in an uncommon way, and that can be a trifle unsettling. Does that make sense? Us angels had a lot to do with Jesus' birth, I can tell you that. When you think of it, let's suppose a world was created for really good things, but the people rejected it and did their own thing. For many centuries, they continued pathetically to get into wars, killing each other and do all manner of evils. Then, by the Father's great love, he sends a long-promised Savior into the world to turn it all around. Well, how would you do it? It couldn't be done in the dark, and that's where we, the angels, come in. My first job was to go to a priest named Zacharias to tell him that his wife was going to become pregnant with the one who was going to prepare the way for the Messiah's ministry. Messiah, that's the word we use for the Savior. There was just one minor inconvenience. Well, they were both quite old. In fact, in the natural sense, too old to have children. That was what he told me when I met him in the temple. But Father God made it so he couldn't speak until after the birth of his son, John. Next, I was to go to a virgin named Mary and tell her that the Holy Spirit of God was going to make her pregnant with God's Savior. She was delightful and fully received what I was telling her, but understandably, she had reservations. Firstly, how was she going to be pregnant without ever having been with a man? And then next, she was engaged to be married to a man named Joseph. So what was she supposed to tell him? I reassured her as best I could, and to my surprise, she simply accepted what I revealed to her. I wish everyone would be like her and just believe. Well, as you can probably guess, my next stop was to her soon-to-be husband. When Mary told him about her pregnancy and tried to explain that all wasn't what it seemed, it didn't go well. To Joseph's credit, he didn't get furiously angry, as some probably would, but he resolved to put her away privately and without humiliation, but he wouldn't marry her. So I went to him in a dream and explained the whole truth to him, and that he could and should take Mary as his wife, which he did. I'm sure he had to brave some sly, mischievous looks from his friends and neighbors, but he did marry her. After their marriage, the Roman Caesar Augustus decreed that there should be a census of all the known earth, so as to make a long story short, Joseph and a heavily pregnant Mary made their way to Bethlehem to the city of David, where his ancestral home was. When they arrived, there was no room at any inn or, in, or, or dwelling for them at all. So a kind manager gave them space in the manger where at least they'd be out of the cold. That was the night of Jesus' birth, and it was my great pleasure to announce it to the world. As I made my appearance, the people were terrified, so much so that I declared to them, Do not be afraid, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy, which will be for all the people. For today in the city of David there has been born for you a Savior, 
who is Christ the Lord. This will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. After I'd said this, suddenly a huge heavenly host appeared and we praised God, singing, Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among men with whom he's pleased. All the people who were gathered around us then went to find uh, the manger that we spoke about. Well, you'd think it would be considered a job well done, but we still had work to do. King Herod knew that there had been a, the birth of a king, although I doubt he knew the scope of it, and was determined that there should be no competition to his reign. So he sent soldiers out into the towns to kill any child that was under two years of age. So I warned jo Joseph in a dream to get Jesus, Mary, and himself out of town and go into hiding in Egypt. I wish everyone was as faithful and obedient as Joseph. It wouldn't make my job so much easier. Then, you guessed it, when Herod died, I appeared to him again to come back to Israel amongst his people. So, there we, have, there we have it. It all seems glamorous and adventurous to be an angel. And to be fair, sometimes it is. And things we get to do are really quite great. I'd like to try that idea you have of flying. It sounds like fun, but really, that's not how it works. Uh, we get there so much easier and faster by just sort of getting there.
Rory Stewart has been an MP, a soldier and a diplomat. He talks to Michael Barclay about his religious belief and the charity he started in Afghanistan. Diplomat, soldier, explorer, politician, academic. My guest today, Rory Stewart, defies easy labels. By his own admission, his identity is complicated. He describes himself as a Scot, born in Hong Kong and brought up in Malaysia. After Eton, he went on to Oxford and the diplomatic service, but then abandoned this conventional career path and spent two years walking across Afghanistan and Iran. I'm very struck by the fact that you obviously encountered at every turn uh, Islamic belief, Islamic fundamentalism. And I can't help wondering whether religious belief is important to you. It's deeply important to me without my really being able to articulate it. So I go to church and I, I, as a politician, twice spent 11 days in silent meditation, spending 14 hours a day meditating in, um, in a retreat and I have particular affection for monasteries and the monastic life. And I read the Bible a great deal, but I don't think any of this quite adds up to finding my way fully towards a, a, a full, rich faith. Our next music is Bach, and there's an expression of heartfelt religious belief here, isn't there? It's extraordinary. I mean, it, it's and uh, sensuousness too. I mean, we might see him as rather a sort of uptight figure of the early 18th century, but in fact this is suffused with sort of almost romantic Italian opera-style love, suddenly in the middle of it, that he takes from the Song of Songs. It's, it's um, you know, one sense of Bach's emotions and soul coming through is, is extraordinary. Thomas Hampson and Alan Bergius were the soloists in that duet from the cantata BWV 140, Sleeper's Wake, by Johann Sebastian Bach. Nikolaus Arnoncourt conducting Concentus Musicus Wien. After that first two-year walk, uh, you spent more time in Afghanistan, Rory. You set up a charity there, which is where you met your wife, in fact, Shoshana. You visited first just after the Taliban left. Well, now they're back. And I wonder how you look back at your own involvement there. Was it a waste of time or not? I don't think it was a waste of time. I mean, we were very, very lucky. We set up this charity. We saved and restored the historic buildings, the centre of the old city, 150 buildings, worked with thousands of Afghan craftspeople, 
created a clinic, created a primary school institute for traditional Afghan arts. Uh, it's a sort of, I suppose, a sort of mini national trust-like endeavour, which was uh, directed at Afghanistan, but with the connection to the community. Certainly, this is under threat, and it's difficult working in Taliban government. We've managed to get the clinic up and going again. We've managed to get the primary school open. We're currently in negotiations with the Taliban government about getting women back into the institute and how we do that training and teaching. But it's a reminder of life. I mean, you do things like this, which are obviously risky. We, we always knew that setting up a charity in Afghanistan, there was the possibility the Taliban could take over again. We've almost planned on that from the beginning. And I suppose the way we would justify it to ourselves is both to say that you have to take risks sometimes in life and accept that some of the things that you do can go wrong, but also that just keeping going for 15 years has had an impact on lives, created employment, given people education opportunities, allowed young women to develop skills they never would have had before. We've taken exhibitions to America, to Bahrain, exposed people to new things. And that, whatever happens in the next few years, and I'm very worried about Afghanistan, I'm very worried about it. The fact it's now going into an economic crisis, people are on the edge of starvation. I am very worried about that. But it can never take away the, the 15 years where people did have another life and other opportunities. Mm -hmm. If I say we're going to hear music by the composer you probably admire above all others, uh, you'll know who I'm referring to. Yes, so we're, we're about to hear a very famous piece from Mozart's Marriage of Figaro. And, and in this piece, Figaro, who's an extremely cunning and inventive servant, is plotting his revenge against his master, who's a a sleazy count who's hitting on Figaro's fiancé. L'arte scarmento, l'arte adoprando, ti congendo. Christian Gerhard performing that aria from the first act of Mozart's The Marriage of Figaro with the Freiburg Baroque Orchestra led by Gottfried von der Goritz, an aria of political revolt.
Sorensen is Church of Scotland minister in Greenock. Alan has given us permission to broadcast some of his short God spots. And today he talks about the clown, Patch Adams. Okay, let me ask you this. If Jesus said that he came to give us life, and life in all its fullness, then how come so many of us Christians go around looking so miserable? Is that really what God wants from us? Does he dislike us that much? Well, can I suggest, if your religion or your morality makes life dreary, then it's a fairly safe bet that God doesn't want you to be that way. Think about this. Jesus, the patch Adams of the spirit. Excessive blessings to you. Toodaloo the new. Jeremy Irons has recorded the Psalms from the authorised version of the Bible. Today we hear Jeremy reading Psalm 137. It's followed by Voices 8 singing Lux Eterna to music by Edward Elgar. By the rivers of Babylon there we sat down, yea, we wept when we remembered Zion. We hanged our harps upon the willows in the midst thereof. For there they that carried us away captive required of us a song, and they that wasted us required of us mirth, saying, Sing us one of the songs of Zion. How shall we sing the Lord's song in a strange land? If I forget thee, O Jerusalem, let my right hand forget her cunning. If I do not remember thee, let my tongue cleave to the roof of my mouth, if I prefer not Jerusalem above my chief joy. Remember, O Lord, the children of Edom, in the day of Jerusalem, who said, Raise it, raise it, even to the foundation thereof. O daughter of Babylon, who art to be destroyed, happy shall he be that rewardeth thee as thou hast served us. Happy shall he be that taketh and dasheth thy little ones against the stones.
Deirdre Powery spoke at Pitlochry Baptist Church. Deirdre expressed her mixed feelings about Christmas. I love Christmas. I mean, I really, I just love Christmas. In my family, I'm a bit of a figure of fun because I start stockpiling shortbread and after it's around about the end of October and I want my tree up on the 1st of December. I could listen to Bing Crosby singing White Christmas all year round. I love everything about Christmas, and I'm not alone. The world gets wrapped up in the Christmas spirit. We love the sparkle and the tinsel and the carols and the candles. We get misty-eyed as we sit surrounded by our loved ones, as we hear our children's or our grandchildren's laughter, as we see our darlings gazing at us with love. We marvel at God's abundant provision as we sit round tables creaking with food, And we gasp as another beautifully wrapped present appears under the Christmas tree. People just seem nicer at Christmas, don't they? Kinder and friendlier. Folk who'd walk past you at any other time of the year shout, Merry Christmas at you in the street. There's more laughter, there's more singing, there's more joy at Christmas. It makes our hearts feel like liquid chocolate. And we get the real and profound feeling that this is what Christmas is all about. And we know somewhere deep inside us that for one day at least, all is right with the world. 
But what do you do if all's wrong with your world? If your world has fallen apart? What's Christmas all about if you have no family or the family you do have has abandoned you or abused you? Or if the person you love most in the world who promised to care for you and look after you forever dies? What's it all about if every Christmas you look around you and you can't see countless blessings, only the pieces of your dreams and the future you imagined for yourself lying shattered at your feet? What happens when your neighbours don't shout a cheery Merry Christmas at you as you hurry home but turn away and mutter ugly names instead? When you sing joy to the world with your mouth but your heart is like a closed tomb. When you hear the nativity story year upon year upon year and that baby in the straw is the embodiment of everything you're not. And the weight of your loss becomes just about impossible to carry one more step.
Mary Haddo is Minister of Pitlochry Church of Scotland. Today her subject is the Christmas baby. An American Christian called Nancy Dahlberg tells this story of her family and what happened one Christmas to remind them that God came for all. It was Sunday, Christmas Day. Our family had spent the holiday in San Francisco with my husband's parents. But in order for us to be back at work on Monday, we found ourselves driving the 400 miles back home to Los Angeles on Christmas Day. We stopped en route for some lunch. The restaurant was nearly empty. We were the only family, and ours were the only children. Suddenly, Eric, our one-year-old, squealed with delight and yelled, Hi there! The two words that he always thought were one. Hi there! He pounded his fat baby hands on the high chair metal tray, and his face was alive with excitement. His eyes were wide and his gums were bared in a toothless grin. And he wriggled and he giggled. And then I saw the source of his merriment. And my eyes couldn't take it all in at once. A tattered rag of a coat, obviously bought by someone eons ago. Dirty, greasy and worn. Baggy pants, a spindly body, toes that poked out of would-be shoes. A shirt that had a ring around the collar all over and a face like no other and gums just as bare as Eric's. Hi there, baby. Hi there, big boy. I see you, Buster. My husband and I exchanged a look that was a cross between what do we do and poor devil. Our meal came and the banging and the noise from Eric continued. Now the man began shouting across the room. Do you know Pat-a-cake? At-a-boy. Do you know Peekaboo? Hey, look, he knows Peekaboo. Eric continued to laugh and to answer, Hi there. Every call echoed. Nobody thought it was cute. The guy was a drunk and a disturbance. I was embarrassed. My husband, Dennis, was humiliated. Even our six-year-old said, Why is that old man shouting so loud? We ate as quickly as we could and Dennis went to pay the bill. He told me to get Eric and meet him out at the car. Lord, just let me get out of here, I prayed, before he speaks to me or Eric. And I bolted for the door. It was soon obvious that God and Eric had other plans. As I drew closer to the man, I turned my back, walking to sidestep him in any air that he might be breathing. And as I did so, Eric, all the while with his eyes riveted on his new best friend, leaned over my arm and reaching up with both arms in a baby's pick-me-up position. And then in the split second of me turning and Eric lunging, I lost my balance and I came eye to eye with the old man. Eric was lunging for him, arms spread wide. The old man's eyes seemed to both ask and implore. But there was no need for me to answer because Eric himself had propelled himself from my arms to the man's. And suddenly a very old smelly man and a very young baby met in a beautiful relationship. 
Eric, in an act of total trust, laid his tiny head upon the man's ragged shoulder. The man's eyes closed, and I saw a tear hover beneath his lashes. His aged hands, full of grime and pain and hard labour, gently, so gently, cradled my baby and stroked his back, and I stood dumbfounded. The old man rocked and cradled Eric in his arms for a moment, and then his eyes opened, and he looked squarely at me, and he said in a firm and commanding voice, you take care of this baby. And somehow I managed to say, I will, from a throat that contained a stone. He pried Eric from his chest and I held my arms open to receive my baby and the man said, God bless you, ma'am. You've given me my Christmas. With Eric in my arms, I ran for the car. Dennis was wondering why I was crying and holding Eric so tightly and I was saying, may God forgive me. I had just witnessed unconditional love. And it was shown through the innocence of a tiny child who made no judgment. A child who saw a fellow soul and a mother who saw a suit of clothes. I was a Christian who was blind, holding a child who was not. And I felt as if God was asking, are you willing to share your son for a moment? Such a question from he who shared his son for all eternity. The ragged old man unwittingly had reminded me, to enter the kingdom of heaven, we must become as little children. Mm -hmm.